Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning into the 328th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most respected, popular, and influential singer-songwriters of the last quarter century. She is a rare talent, often likened to Joni Mitchell, who burst onto the scene 25 years ago with her debut album, Pieces of You, which went 12 times platinum on the back of hit singles like Who Will Save Your Soul, You Were Meant For Me, and Foolish Games. And her subsequent 11 albums have included other high-charting tunes spanning the genres of music, such as Hands, Intuition, and Stronger Woman. An artist who has sold more than 30 million albums and accumulated four Grammy nominations, Jewel Kilcher, better known as Jewel. A New York Times critic in 1996 wrote, quote, Jewel's voice can be a sultry alto, a clear soprano, a country whoop, a little girl whisper, or a speedy yodel, and her songs are lucid and articulate. With unabashed earnestness, she confesses her desire or preaches lessons in empathy. She can spin out metaphors, tell unadorned stories, or come up with choruses like, I'm sensitive and I'd like to stay that way, or I'll never trust my pink fleshy heart to a carnivore, close quote. And in 2015, Rolling Stone noted that her music, quote, carves out a confessional coffeehouse niche between the decline of grunge and the rise of the slinky pop princess, close quote. Over the course of our conversation, the 45-year-old and I discussed her remarkable journey from a homestead in Alaska to homelessness in San Diego to household name, the stories behind her greatest hits, how mindfulness, the subject of Robert Beamer's new documentary, The Mindfulness Movement, for which Jewel and Deepak Chopra served as executive producers and which is now available for streaming, helped her through thick and thin and could help you through the stress of the ongoing pandemic, plus much more. And so with great thanks to Jewel, with a plea to our listeners to stay home, and without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Jewel, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We always begin with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? I was raised in Alaska and my family were pioneers. They helped settle the state. My dad was a musician and a social worker. Mm -hmm. And music was a big part of your parents' lives too, right? It was not, you really were sort of born into the the biz, so to speak. Definitely not the biz, but I was born into creativity. <laughs> My grandmother yes. and grandfather left Europe just before the Second World War. They wanted to form a utopian artistic colony of people that were escaping Germany. Nobody ended up going up there except my grandfather and my grandmother, who didn't know him exceptionally well, but she knew she wanted to have kids in a free country. So she gave up her dreams of being an opera singer and a poetess and went to Alaska before it was a state, and they tamed the wild land. It's an incredible story. And she had eight children, a lot of them in a dirt-floored log cabin, and she taught them all to sing and to draw and to paint. And so all of my eight aunts and uncles are exceptionally talented. They all write their own music. So all of our holiday gatherings were very musical. Everybody just wrote songs. That's what everybody did. It was very normal to me. And all of my cousins are very talented. It's really, it's just sort of, it is what my family does. My dad's the one that picked up where she left off. He made a couple records, was hoping to go national. 
when my mom left when I was eight. And so he and I, he, he took over raising us and, uh, he and I became a duet, started singing with my dad and my mom when I was five in hotels. They did dinner shows for tourists, like on the side, it was like a Mm -hmm. side gig for my dad. And then he and I became, yeah, this duo when I was eight and that was his full-time gig. Pretty much. Uh, we were singing in bars from age eight on. And yodeling was a part of that. Is that from, from early on? Yeah. My, uh, dad taught himself to yodel and I was fascinated with it when I was five. And he (laughs) said I was too young to learn, which apparently was the exact right thing to say to me to make me practice a lot. And so I, uh, (laughs) practiced and practiced so I could prove him wrong and yeah, began yodeling. (laughs) Well, preparing for this, I was, you know, reading everything I could find going back to the beginning about you. And it was interesting. I, I understand there was at one point even a music professor or somebody who came up and said, like, this is not supposed to be able to happen, right? That a child it, it vocally is really, it's shouldn't be able to yodel it at that young an age, right? Yeah. My, my dad said, uh, when came up to him at a show when I was very young, about five or so. And, uh, yeah, I didn't know how I was doing it. Obviously, she was wrong. I'm, I'm sure. I just don't know that a lot of five-year-olds try, really, because who would? It's a strange <laughs> thing. I needed a psychiatrist, not like a. <laughs> <laughs> well, so was were those kinds of performances in bars and hotels and, you know, the first experiences that you were having doing music for others, was that fun? Was that work? Did what, what's, what's your takeaway when you think back about those days? I remember being fascinated by singing because it felt like a puzzle. I don't know why I felt that way, but I was very, very interested from a very young age figuring out a lot of very technical things. I didn't know that word, obviously, but that's what interested me about it. It was like this puzzle that I kept having to think about all day to be like, I wonder how I do that. I wonder how I do that. That's what really got me hooked. The performing was more nerve wracking. I wasn't a, uh, sometimes you see little pageant kids, you know, that are just, they're just so outgoing and extroverted and they smile. And I wasn't like that. I was very shy. I was very introverted. I hated going on stage, but I also knew that was the culmination of all this practice that I enjoyed. Uh, The first time I went on stage, I got hiccups because I was so nervous. So I had the hiccups while yodeling, which sounds ridiculous. And everybody started giggling. I mean, I guess looking back, it's cute to see a five-year-old hiccup yodeling, but (laughs) I felt really mortified. You know, I was like, they're laughing at my serious practice, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Now, um, one thing I I gathered again from from this reading was that you, from a very early age, learned another part of the, I guess, the music scene that, that you would see more of later on, which is that you know, you're going to encounter some some unsavory characters uh, there. Some of the, you know, I guess at a bar, you're going to have all kinds of folks. And you were saying, you know, I guess it's it's something you're able to talk about now because it sounds like you have a very nice relationship with your dad. But even at that point, it was not all, you know, roses and sunshine or whatever. I mean, it was a tough from a very early age. You were seeing some bad behavior, right? Yeah. So. You know, nobody's ever one thing, typically. We're usually a lot of things. We have great qualities and bad qualities. I learned a lot of great things in my family. My family's very bright, beautiful storytellers, charismatic, highly, like, they're capable. They work hard and they pioneer. But there was also a lot of emotional dysfunction. As much as we inherit a genetic component, we inherit an emotional component, and it gets passed on generationally. My dad had a very abusive childhood. He 
wrote a book called Son of a Midnight Land um, that chronicles a lot of what happened. I love that book because a lot of people, there's a lot of debate about personality settling. How late in time can you change? Can you change when you're older? My dad is living proof that you can. The book's just such a raw, gripping look at abuse and shame and then repeating a cycle. And then how do you heal from that in your 60s? But for me, when I was young, you know, my mom left, which is obviously really traumatic. And then my dad had a lot of trauma and PTSD. And those words weren't known that I'm aware of. So he was a Vietnam He was vet, a Vietnam right? vet. What was interesting is when he went to Vietnam, it was calming for him. That's how hard his childhood was and his home life was. He realized he was in trouble when he got to Vietnam and his system was much more relaxed than it ever had been at home. So my dad had trauma from his childhood and then again trauma from Vietnam. He was part of the Tet Offense of 69 and some pretty gnarly stuff. So when my mom left, obviously you can imagine he's trauma triggering and he's tried to drink to medicate, which is very common. And you're going to repeat cycles you were raised by. You know, our brains are these binary computers that are wired. And as much as he didn't want to, obviously, when you, you can't exist in a vacuum, unless you learn new behavior and practice new behavior, you really aren't going to do well. So he and I had a rough relationship, you know, a lot of great times, but also a lot of really hard times. And I ended up moving out at 15. And I'd seen a lot by then. I've been bar singing since I was eight, you know, as you say. And an Alaska bar is a bar. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I guess one thing that is kind of a, a feel good to hopefully counter some of the, the, you know, that you'd had already seen some things by the time you're 15, but it sounds like at 15, a, you were known enough in, in your community, at least that when this idea of going elsewhere for some music education came about the, the community kind of rallied behind you from, from the way it sounds. Right. I mean, can you share how this place in Michigan comes on your radar, a private, school and and just how it became possible for somebody who didn't have much money to go there. Yeah, so I moved out at 15. I lived really far out of town in a little one-room cabin without electricity or running water. I was hitchhiking into work, holding down several jobs to try and get rent together. And one of my jobs was cleaning random buildings, you know, if somebody would let me clean their building and pay me. I mean, thank heavens this was in the, you know, really, really early 90s when somebody would pay a 15-year-old <laughs> I mean, it might, right. might still happen, but now it's funny. It's getting harder and harder to pay kids for work. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I started cleaning a little dance studio and an out-of-town clinician came and taught a dance clinic. And so I asked if I cleaned his studio, would he let me take a dance class in exchange? I had always been told I was really stiff on stage. I was just like a little robot that would turn like, I don't know, every four measures. <laughs> I would go like, all right, rotate. And he let me do that. I was a terrible dancer. I was not born to be a dancer. But he found out I sang. And he was a teacher at this fine arts school in Michigan. And he said, why don't you apply for a vocal scholarship, which was beyond bizarre to me, something I'd never dreamed of. But he helped me get the application. And so I had to sing an aria. I was a bar singer. I did not sing classical music. So I learned a French aria and did the best I could and sent it off. And I got a partial scholarship. I got a $5,000 scholarship, but I needed another $10,000 to go. And six women in town, several of my aunts, took me under their wing and taught me how to do a fundraising concert. So it was my first solo show. I'd never written songs. I still wasn't writing at this point. 
never, I only ever sang harmony for my dad. I wasn't a front singer. So this was my first time carrying a show, much less singing that much lead. And I did all Cole Porter songs because there was a Gaiden man in me dying to get out. Loved Cole <laughs> Porter. I remember for a talent show in fourth grade, I wanted to do Love for Sale. And I remember Mary Epperson, the music teacher, being like, this is about a prostitute. Like, <laughs> you, you can't sing this song for the fourth grade talent show. But it wasn't lost on me on how beautifully written that was. I was such a Cole Porter fan. My aunts taught me how to go to local businesses and get uh, donations to be able to auction off. And my town sent me off to school. They helped me raise $10,000. Tom Bodette was a guy who lived in Homer, and he really helped. And it sounds like you've literally described it I've, I've, in one interview from years ago as as a turning point, just that I guess maybe can you share just some of what you began to do when you were there that has served you really ever since? Yeah, that was a pivotal year, you know, learning that I could move out, learning that I could take care of myself, learning that I could have more of a say and control over my environment. I was excited. I was looking forward to life. It was also anxious. You know, I started having panic attacks at this time. Didn't know what those were. I'd never heard of them. When I went to school, my panic attacks began. I would learn to, you know, take myself out of class and excuse myself and go have a complete breakdown. For anybody that's had a panic attack, it's shocking. And when you're 16 and you have never heard them and they don't trust anybody. You know, I was a very like street kind of shy, leery kid. I didn't tell anybody what was happening. And so I had to start develop tools. I knew when I moved out that statistically kids like me repeat the cycle they're raised by. I knew, I called it emotional English. There was an emotional language my family learned and I didn't want to repeat that cycle, but there was no school I could go to. You can learn Spanish in a school, but you can't learn a new emotional way of relating to the world. I knew I was up against a lot, but I was so curious about that. Could happiness be learned if it wasn't taught in my house? Nature versus nurture. If I didn't receive good nurture, could I get to know my real nature? Or would I ever ever get to know my real nature if your nurture is that incorrect or whatever you want to say? And so I started taking notes. It was strange. So as much the interlock and creatively was incredible. I took tons of classes. I skipped lunch. I doubled majored. I double minored. I was making the most of my scholarship because I didn't think I'd ever get to go back. Learned guitar, right? Yeah, I learned guitar because I... You, you weren't allowed to stay on campus, and I couldn't afford to go to Alaska. So I decided to play guitar and learn to street sing and earn money to hitchhike across the country and hitchhike through Mexico because I'm an idiot. <laughs> this was just during just a spring break or something? Yeah. So my first time, I remember my dad shipped me down a guitar. I had never played, but he gave me one of his guitars. And I learned four chords, A minor, C, G, and D in that order. And... I had enough money to get to Detroit. My school was in Interlochen, Michigan. And, uh, of course, met nefarious, crazy people on the Greyhound bus and <laughs> just started writing about it. I slept in the Greyhound bus station in Detroit overnight. Not a great idea. Street sang in Detroit. And I just made up lyrics about people. My dad was a very good – he would improvise very well. So he would yeah. do these five-hour yeah. sets. Nobody would be listening to us at, like, a drunk, like, Amvets club – and so my dad, to entertain me, would make up lyrics about people that weren't listening to us. And so I grew up learning to improvise. So that was my huge plan, like play these four chords over and over, make up lyrics about people as they walk by and see if I can get money. And I just slowly, you know, I'd take whatever money I made and gave it to the Amtrak ticket office and see how far I got by train and did end up 
hitchhiking and taking trains all through Mexico and just kept adding lyrics to this song and it became a song. It became Who Will Save Your Soul. Wow. And you were, were you by yourself on this trip or was this also, because I, I think I may be getting my chronology wrong, but I know that at one point you had a boyfriend who was also, I thought, in Mexico with you. Is that correct? That was a little later. So my friend Steve Poltz, when I was 18, we went to Mexico on a writing trip and got on a crazy, yeah, crazy adventure. And we wrote, <laughs> you were meant for me on that one. Mexico's been good for me yes. for the hits, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So the the one other thing I guess we should talk about in terms of the songwriting before we get into beyond that is just that you've you've also spoken about something that we've talked about on this podcast with a number of, of artistic people who seem to have found ways to deal with this, and that's dyslexia. I mean, Henry Winkler, just different people. For for a writer, for someone who's, you know, a big part of your life is is songwriting and writing journals and all the things that led to the songwriting, how did you navigate that? When I was young, obviously, it made school difficult. I also moved a lot. I think between the ages of 8 and 18, I counted that I lived in 22 different places. So it was a lot of travel, which meant I was missing huge sections of school because one school starts a curriculum here, you know, let's say the second half of the year. But by the second half of the year, I'm moving. And the school I moved into already had taught that part of the curriculum. So there were big holes in my education, which made that difficult. And then you add dyslexia in, and it was really, really difficult. I was really lucky, though, that in eighth or ninth grade, I landed in Anchorage with my mom, and there was an alternative school that had it was voluntary. It was much more like a college. So you were able mm -hmm. to come and go. And there was a philosophy class and I was terrible at reading, but I loved the information in it so much that I, it inspired me to figure out how does my brain work? How do I read? How can I make things lay down on the page? I always wrote, I'd written poetry since I was really young. And I really fortunately happened to have some teachers like this philosophy class, another guy in fifth grade, Noticed that I was a very creative writer, but my grammar and spelling and words were all backwards. But he never he never forced me to fix my spelling. He never forced me to fix my grammar. He really, for some reason, valued my creativity. I think that if he, that one teacher, had really just driven home, like, nope, you have to be great at spelling, it probably would have killed my passion for it. So there were miraculous little angels that somehow just helped me keep this interest that I had in expressing myself alive. Amazing. Well, so you mentioned after Interlochen, you relocated again, this time to San Diego with your mom. And I wonder why you decided to do that and what awaited you when you were there, because it seems like that that's another thing that just not your typical experience. <laughs> My mom was down there. She was having heart problems and health problems, and I went down there to take care of her. I loved my mom immensely. You know, I never knew that my mom had decided she needed a break from having kids, and that's why she left. I always had a fantasy that she wanted us, but my evil father is the one who wouldn't let us see her. You know, so I was very attached. Um, we did have contact. It was not normal. I have a book called Norm mm. Never Broken, where I really go into the relationship <laughs> yes. with my mom because it's a lot. It's a very unusual and strange thing. I didn't realize my dad was much healthier. We had a, my dad, mm. even though he was, you know, an alcoholic for a lot of that and physically abusive, 
he actually was much more stable in a strange way. But I didn't see that coming. That's years and years away. So I went to take care mm -hmm. of my mom. Very stressful, trying to pay rent for both of us. It was a expensive place, more than I could afford. Um, all the money was going to rent, you know, scraping food off of people's plates where I was hostessing, taking toilet paper from restrooms, you know, to be able to bring home and things like that. And then ultimately a boss asked me to have sex with him. And when I wouldn't, he wouldn't give me my paycheck and we couldn't pay our rent. Uh, we both started living in our cars, my mom and I. My mom and I ended up going back to Alaska and I stayed thinking, this will turn around. I'll get another job. And it just never quite did turn around. And I guess, you know, it's just important for younger people maybe who are who are listening to this to understand, you know, now thankfully we have something, you know, this whole Me Too movement or whatever. But at that even as recently as the this must be like early nineties, there wasn't a lot of recourse for a for a scumbag, you know, to deal with a scumbag like that, right? No, I had no idea what to do. There was no microphone, you know, there was no um social media, there was no who would you report it to? Like, I had no idea. And when you're very low income, there's just really nobody that cares. And and you're not raised in a system that helps you learn how to advocate for yourself. So that was that, you know. He didn't pay me and I got kicked out. Like, that was just, that's how life was. And this idea of, of you and your mom living in your respective cars, I mean, I think people, if they have just a, a brief sense of, of your biography, they they may have heard about that that there was this period of of essentially homelessness. But I wonder if you can just clarify because I know you've made a, an excellent documentary about it. And there's all it's a it's it's a lot more nuanced than that. You were well. Let me just leave it to you to explain how that wound up being the case. That we ended up in our cars. Well, just that it was essentially a suggestion of your of your mother, right? Oh, and yeah. and for the idea of saving what so that you can now fuel your creativity that way or, or, or what? Yeah. So I was devastated, you know, when I went into my boss, so he, we went and got burgers one day. He's like, Hey, let me, let me take you out to lunch. It seemed really harmless. And so we were eating burgers and he was acting funny and I was starting to pick up and, you know, growing up in bars, you start to really see the signs. And I was like, what's going on? Like, you know, and so he propositioned me and I joked it off. I really didn't think a lot of it. It didn't go badly. It was like, yeah, right never happening. And we moved on with our conversation. So I didn't think a lot about it. I was very surprised when I went in the next day for my paycheck. You know, he was looking at his desk, looking at some papers, and he wouldn't look at me. And I really didn't think a lot of it. It was like, it wasn't a huge emotional blowout. He didn't respond the way some men can very violently and very like, you're like, oh, this is an issue. So I was very surprised. So I was like, I'm here for my paycheck. He wouldn't look up. I was like, hey, I'm here for my paycheck. He never would look up at me. He never acknowledged me. He just acted like I was a ghost. It was a crazy, humiliating, like mind-boggling experience. But I realized, obviously, the gravity of what was happening because my, my rent was often late. My landlord was nice, but he was like, you have to pay your rent this time or else you're getting kicked out. I knew that when I went in for my paycheck. So I knew leaving there without my paycheck that that meant my mom, who's ill, and I are going to be kicked out. We have no prospects. I have no money saved. I'm, this is it. So I'm desperately crying. I try and pull myself together. I get to my mom, and I'm crying. You know, mom, I'm, we can't pay the rent. Like, we're, we're going to be kicked out. We have nowhere to go. And her response was very funny. You know, she was like, let's just live in our cars. That sounded like heaven to me. 
Like, the stress of paying that rent every month was so overwhelming that the idea of having no rent and living in my car was like, oh, it was like the most beautiful <laughs> fix to me. <laughs> the, and you're how old again at this point? I'm 18. And okay. so the idea wasn't to focus on my creativity. The idea was to get a new job with no overhead because that's the hard thing, right? When you need to pay it for a new apartment, you have to have first and last month's rent and usually a deposit for damages. I didn't have that much money. So the goal was to live in our cars. I'll get a job. I'll work at a job maybe for three months. I grew up living in a saddle barn on a homestead in Alaska with no plumbing and an outhouse. Living in my car in San Diego honestly didn't sound that bad. It sounded like a relief <laughs> to be able to save up some money. And I thought in three months, I'll get a new apartment. I'll save up. That was the plan. Right. And then your mom, you say, goes goes back to Alaska. You are staying with your in your car. And I guess at that point during the daytime, it sounds like that's you know, and, and this is just to tease a little bit about this new documentary about mindfulness, but that's sort of when you discovered, or maybe it was after something happened to your car, that you made a concerted effort to be grateful for and focus on things that you did have. Yeah, so I knew things got progressively worse. My mom went back to Alaska. I was starting to have really bad panic attacks again. I started becoming agoraphobic. I was sick a lot. I had bad kidneys, so I kept getting infections. Mm -hmm. I didn't have the money to get medication. I didn't have the money for insurance or doctors. I often tried to just tough out these infections, which is very dangerous. I almost died in the emergency room parking lot of a hospital because they wouldn't see me because they didn't have insurance. I don't know if that was legal or illegal. I think that was illegal, but it happened. And I was so sick, I had sepsis. So by the time I got there, I was very, very ill. And I didn't advocate for myself. You know, I was just so sick and I got turned away and I sat in the passenger seat of this little teeny beat up car I was living in and I was just throwing up all over myself. Uh, you die of sepsis. Luckily, mm -hmm. a doctor had seen me and I guess he suspected that I was really ill and I didn't know I had sepsis or anything. I didn't know those words. He uh, came out and knocked on my window. I was covered in my own vomit and he gave me sample antibiotics, you know, that they must have around in the hospital and his card. And he said, I'll help you. And so he treated me for free for many years. He saved my life that night. I would have died in that car in the parking lot. Um, it's crazy. Wow. Then my car got stolen that I was living in, but I wasn't in it, you know, and you learn to be very grateful because you, you know, the danger, like being homeless is hard. I mean, you think you have all this free time to look for a job. That's not how it works. Like every second of every day is how do I stay safe? How do I not get murdered or raped? How do I find some food? How do I find some water? And where do I sleep? That takes so much energy. There are people suffering from anxiety that have homes and jobs and spouses, and they're crippled by anxiety. And it's really funny to me when people look at homeless person and they go, that lazy person, why are they on drugs? There's people in homes that are on drugs. <laughs> mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. very, very, very draining to be homeless. It's very dehumanizing. You know, people start to see you and they cross the street so they don't have to have eye contact with you. You feel so, you feel like such a piece of shit. Like it's, mm -hmm. you have less value than people's pets. Like it's a really mm -hmm. awful experience to live through. And you start to lose hope. You start to think anything can be different. I was stealing a lot. I started with food and then it was escalating. 
And there was just one day when I was in a dressing room trying to steal a dress and I looked at myself mm. in the mirror and I saw what I looked like and I was like, holy shit, I'm a statistic. I didn't beat the odds. That little optimistic mission I had of you know not being this, repeating the cycle. I mean, I stayed off the stripper pole. That's good. But I was in a bad <laughs> spot. <laughs> and right. uh, I remembered this quote that I had read by Buddha that said, happiness doesn't depend on who you are or what you have. It depends on what you think. I was stripped of everything but my thoughts. And I became very inspired and impassioned to see if I could turn my life around one thought at a time. So I didn't steal the dress and I made a commitment to trying to figure out what I was thinking. And would that be a clue? I mean, it's a horrible plan, right? You leave a store of shoplifting and you're like, I'm going to watch my thoughts. This is going to work out great. <laughs> I, I had so much anxiety. I couldn't observe my thoughts in real time. And I realized if I watched my hands, your hands are the servants of your thought. So if you want to see what you're thinking, watch what your hands are doing because it's your thought cooled down into action. So my huge plan was to write in my journal about everything my hands did. I mean, that was literally my huge life plan at this point. So that's what I did. I wrote down how many times did I turn a faucet on? How many times did I, whatever, play guitar, you know, because I started, I was street singing. How many times did I shake a hand or open a door? It was like ridiculous. So I did this strange tallying of following my hands around. And a really bizarre side effect happened. My anxiety virtually disappeared when I was doing it. It was bizarre. I was just trying to figure out what I was thinking, and somehow my anxiety disappeared. And I started realizing that when I was very, very present, very curious, very observant, my anxiety went away. It was almost like I was distracted from my anxiety. I didn't quite know what was happening, but it felt good, and it felt different, and it was very noticeable to me. And so I started experimenting. I began to... I mean, it was just a very productive year for me personally. I began to figure out that fear and worry are a thief. They take the past and they project onto a future that hasn't happened. And your anxiety and worry are supposed to keep you safe, right? That's supposedly why you're worrying. But my worry was doing the one thing that kept me unsafe, which was kept me so distracted I wasn't showing up in my own life. The only time we can create change is like right now, right now. Anxiety and worry rob us of showing up right now to make a different choice. So if I was to describe mindfulness, I would just say it's conscious presence. That's it. It's just a weird word for being consciously present. And if you can observe a thought and create a gap before you act on it, that gap, that time you give yourself, you can actually insert a new behavior than a neurological reaction. So a lot of us, our brains are binary computers. We move toward pleasure. We move away from pain. We lay down habits and memories to help us remember where those rewards are. My rewards were all turned around. I, When I felt scared, I shoplifted, and the reward was I felt in control. I got a biochemical hit. So I realized if our brains are addictive, there must be a biological reason. It must work to our advantage. It was just not working to my advantage right then. So I decided to see if I could get addicted to something else, and I began doing experiments, and I started saying, all right, I can't tr change my stimulus. I'm homeless. I'm doing what I can, but it's hard. I can change my reaction and maybe I'll get a reward from it. And so I started writing a lot. Every time I stole, I decided to write instead of stealing. So if I wanted to steal, I would just force myself not to, which was really hard. And then I would make myself write. 
I became very prolific, <laughs> but mm -hmm. it was only because I was trying to rewire this habit and it started working. Writing started to feel so much better than stealing. My body started to sensitize and reorganize itself to give me a biochemical payoff for writing. And I was starting to tell the truth. You know, I hid. I was a kid that grew up in bars, moved out on my own. You don't trust people. You don't talk to people. So I was lonely, but a lot of it was self-induced because I wasn't honest. I didn't connect to anyone. The only place I told the truth was in this journal nobody saw. So I started writing honest songs and I started, I found a gig in a coffee shop that was going out of business. It's weird, you know, San Diego at the time had a big music scene, grunge. Records, yeah. you know, deals were getting signed out of San Diego and all the coffee shops would charge you to play music there. So I tried to get a gig. I'm used to like getting paid for singing, right? As a kid. Yeah. <laughs> doing five hour shows. And I go into a coffee shop and they're like, all right, you can play here on Saturday, but we need $200 from you. I was like, <laughs> what in the hell is happening? Right, right. So I found a coffee shop that was going out. It said for sale, but the door was still open. And so I went in. There was a woman named Nancy. It was off the beaten path. It didn't have great foot traffic. And I just said, hey, will you keep your doors open for two months? I'm going to charge door money. If I can figure out how to bring people in to see me sing, you can keep all the coffee and food money, and maybe we can make a go of it together. And she, we shook hands, and that's what we did. Was that the interchange? Yeah. Okay. And so from – first of all, I think it's amazing that you just sort of innately figured out the – workings of mindfulness at 18 and in the worst situation almost you could be in. Um, that's incredible. But then, as you say, to have things, I guess, a period of about a year after that, things so turned around. Can you explain how from, you know, going to sing in this coffee shop where you guys are both, both the store and you are based, based barely hanging on, you wind up with record labels coming to check you out and ultimately signing you with Atlantic? Yeah, my, my goal, again, was not to get signed. My goal was to get an apartment. I didn't think I'd get signed. I wasn't even trying. I couldn't hold a job down because of my kidneys. And when you start to look homeless and you don't have a address for a job application, like I remember applying to 7-Eleven, and there's no way they were going to take me. I mean, I didn't have an address, and I looked homeless. You know, at some point, you just mm -hmm. can't help but start to look ratty. Mm -hmm. And so the best thing I could think of was how could I get a little local following and get paid the way I did as a kid with my dad? I thought you had to do five-hour sets. That's what you do in bars. You know, you do these four- and five-hour <laughs> sets. So I started writing enough material to have five hours worth. I played every Thursday night to try and be predictable, you know, so people always knew I'm at Interchange Thursday night at XPM. And... You know, it's funny. So my car got stolen, right? So I had to save up money and I bought a beat up car to live in again because a car is way better than a street. So all the money I would have kind of, you know, I could have kept saving and sleeping on the street, but it was better to save and get in a car and get safe. Then you start from zero again, right? When I started singing in the coffee shop, now I'm trying to save up. You have to spend money on gas. You have to buy yourself some food. And then you're hoping you can save up something for that first last month's rent and a deposit or a for, uh, what do you call it, for damages. Yeah. And so, and then my friend, Steve Poltz, you know, he and I were friends this whole time. He had like $800 worth of parking tickets. His car got compounded. He couldn't go to gigs. I had $800 saved and I gave it to him because oh you help, you help friends out, you know, and I started again from scratch. And so it was just this really like, 
crazy cycle. Um, but I started to get a following. Like I started, people mm. started coming. My first show had one person in it, a surfer that probably thought I was cute. And he was like, I'll come see you sing, you know. And bless his heart, he stayed for a five-hour show. I sang to this poor wow. human for five hours, and I bled my heart out. <laughs> I mean, these highly emotional songs. They were eight minutes long, you know. But he told a friend, and he brought two friends with him the next time. And then it turned into eight, and then it turned into 12, and then it turned into 20. And then I was doing two shows a day, and I was making good cash. Like, I really was. I was starting to, like, really – I was starting to do okay. Um, and I was just mm -hmm. about to start looking at, all right, I think I can get an apartment when record labels started coming. And it was a complete surprise. You'd see a limousine pull up. It's in the days of limousines. So funny that everybody used limousines yeah, right. back then. <laughs> you'd see a limo pull up to this beat-up little coffee shop, and it was wild. It was a crazy time. Yeah. So you obviously signed with Atlantic, and and I wonder if we can just, for at least a couple of moments, acknowledge this is the 25th anniversary. Can you believe that of Pieces of You, your first album with 14 of these songs that I think you'd probably primarily been writing when you were out on the streets still, right? Yeah, there was a big bidding war over me. Sony, Atlantic, RCA, Everybody, every label came down. They started flying me to New York and putting me up in fancy places and buying dinners that cost more. I mean, you can imagine. Like, it was like a $1,000 meal, a $2,000 meal. I was like, give me the money. Like, give me an apartment. Yeah. Like, I was <laughs> – they didn't know I was living in my car. I didn't tell anyone. Right. I read you got you bought one uh, label guy a, a burrito. You bought him the burrito. I did. I didn't know about expense accounts. I was like, can right. I buy you a taco? <laughs> <laughs> I read a book, Don Passenheim, I think is his name, Everything You Need to Know About the Music Business. I learned about mechanicals back in royalty advances. I was offered a million-dollar signing bonus. There was a bidding war over me, and I turned it down. I realized it was a loan. I realized that that put a tremendous amount of pressure on me to sell records. I was very realistic. The odds of me selling records, I was a folk singer. Like, I wrote very emotional folk songs at the height of grunge. I knew when I sang it moved people, but I felt like the odds of that working were pretty much slim to none. So I turned down the advance. I asked them to pay for rent for an apartment for my mom and my, and my little brother to live in. And I took the biggest back end anybody had gotten up to that point. And just thought, you know, I'll bet on myself. If I earn it, I'll earn it. You know, if I sell a record, I should make the money, but not until then. That ended up being the best thing I could have ever done. It saved my career multiple times. You know, I think people may not necessarily realize that it wasn't like Pieces of You was instantly enormous. There was, I, I've got a quote here that uh, I've just got to read back because I it, it was very interesting to me where there was an executive speaking about you, quote, she was the hardest artist to break and took the longest to break in this company's history. The first year they spat on us and in the most vitriolic way. It was basically, she's a woman, she's a folk artist. Are you kidding? Close quote. And that it was 14 months before this, this album really blew up. How do you explain why did it after 14 months when usually you know, people move on with their lives. I was a weird signing for that era. You know, Nirvana was king. <laughs> you know, it's funny. People really don't ever see an outlier. It's very hard, right? When something does break through, we didn't see Nirvana coming, you know? We were in the material world. We were with 
stadium glam rock and Madonna. Nirvana was, there was no way they were getting signed. It's sheer force of will of Nirvana tapping into a real zeitgeist that a lot of execs don't have the ability to see because they're not on the street, right? I mean, only Nirvana gets to see that. They only get to see that underground angst and hurt and give a voice to it. And then a lot of people that are higher up and more removed from society go, oh, holy smokes. Mm-hmm. It was a similar thing with me. You know, I grunge was basically saying, I don't feel like a hype, happy, shiny person. I hurt. And it was such an important message. You can only say that so long until you kill yourself. And that is the truth. You can only mm-hmm. say that to yourself so long until you go, there is no point of me being alive. Mm-hmm. I happened to get to that point a little bit ahead of other people. I looked in a mirror one day and I was like, I don't want to kill myself. So now what? Mm -hmm. So you can say I'm in pain. Now what? I happen to be about now what? I happen to be like, I feel like shit, but I don't want to commit suicide. So what the fuck do I do? And that was me figuring it out. And so that movement was happening underground. It was like kind of a new underground, if you will, that nobody really could see. They couldn't really see that the sex generation was just starting to shift to what the fuck? I'm so desperate. Mm-hmm. I'm going to kill myself or I'm going to find a reason to live. So when I sang, I was able to tap in live if there was eight people in front of me to that feeling. But nobody saw it, you know, except who you were singing for. And luckily, some champions at my label, they saw the power of the emotionality. But we were laughed out of every single studio, every single radio station, every single gatekeeper. And they weren't just saying, nah, she's sweet, but no thanks. They were saying they were violently against it. It was wild. Like I had we had such a violent reaction <laughs> against crazy. against me. Even, you know, press and journalists, once I got popular, I think I read a details article recently. I posted it. I was on the cover and they were like, we don't get it. Like, she's like a cult leader. <laughs> she's like Pollyanna. It's not smart. They called me unintelligent. They called me, you know, a poor songwriter. It was just, it was crazy the amount of hatred and vitriol that came up for me as a female. I would never be asked about my lyrics. I was asked about what my nail color polish was. And it was just bizarre. It was a really bizarre thing. Yeah. But the more people told me I couldn't do it, I do have a very, like, punkish streak, you know, to me. Yeah. Like, you tell me I can't do it and— I never thought I'd be big, but the more those people so violently were like, you'll never make it, I started to be like, F you. And <laughs> it was, again, the fact that I didn't take any money up front saved my career because, right, there's 600 artists on my label. They all are competing for the same amount of budget. There would be big board meetings, and you have so-and-so that's fighting to break Kid Rock, and you have so-and-so that's fighting mm-hmm. to break Tori Amos, and you have so-and-so trying to break mm-hmm. whoever— I was out for a year and a half without selling records, but my champions were able to say, she cost us $12. Like, let her keep going. And that's why I didn't get dropped. You know, like that not, and I never took a tour bus. I toured in a rental car. I cost nothing. And I did six shows a day. I did two cities a day. I sang in the mornings at high schools. I sang in two radio stations in the afternoon. I did at least one record store appearance. I opened for Peter Murphy in Bauhaus, a goth band. And then I did yes. a midnight <laughs> show at midnight at a coffee shop. I And I drove then 13, you know, 
10 hours, eight hours to keep up with a tour bus that was ahead of me on yeah. Peter Murphy's bus. I killed myself. Like I played yeah. college campuses. I played college radio. Like it was just a sheer force of will and the internet just started. And so people yeah. were able to start expressing their own interests and say, hey, I saw this girl. You have to check her out. People for the first time didn't need radio or establishments to like an artist. They were able to circulate. And my bootlegs began to be circulated. I, I wrote a lot of songs that weren't on the record. I encouraged people recording. I encouraged people sharing them. I got people calling radio stations. You know, it just kind of became this little grassroots army. Absolutely. And eventually just in, you know, I don't think there's any parallel for the for the turnaround. Uh, eventually 12 million copies were sold and suddenly, you know, I guess it's a whole different ballgame for you and, and you're famous, you're making some money and you're working with people who you probably, <laughs> I mean, Bob Dylan, Neil Young, I, this has got to be mind blowing for you at the time. I'm looking at covers of Time Magazine and Rolling Stone. This is all in a very short amount of time. And I'm wondering, was mindfulness, again, key to just weathering this, what's got to be a, a kind of jarring change in your day-to-day? -day? Yes, on the one hand, you're saying you didn't necessarily get a lot of money up front, but just your whole life was was very different, I would guess, very quickly. So was that important to surviving that? When I got signed, I was actually very scared. I almost didn't sign a record deal at all because I knew, again, with somebody with my emotional baggage, God forbid I get famous. That's the, that's the after-school movie we've seen a million times. Mm -hmm. So I made a promise to myself that my first job would be to be a happy whole person. My number two job would be to be a musician. And I made myself another promise. You know, I had to ask her the question, do I want to be popular or do I want to be an artist? Because you're going to make decisions every day and you have to know what your North Star is. Why are you doing it? So my North Star was pick being a healthy human first, pick being a musician second, pick being an artist first, pick being popular second. And it really did affect my decisions. I remember I was offered a spot on The Real World. It was the mm -hmm. first reality show. <laughs> the yes. year I would have been on it was their San Francisco year. It's the year the, the show blew up. I remember yeah. my label calling me. I was destitute still, right? Not destitute. I had an apartment now, but it's not like my career was going anywhere fast. I hadn't right. even made my record right. yet. And they were like, you could live in this house. You could make your record live on television. You would break overnight. And I turned <laughs> it down because of that mm -hmm. weird, dumb promise I made myself. I want to be an artist, not popular. And I knew growing up in the country, hardwood grows slowly. Things that grow too fast fall over. And that's a natural law. It's a law of nature. And I believed in that. And so I turned it down and I slugged it out. And, you know, two years later of being miserable and selling no records and playing for five people, you think maybe I should have done the TV show. <laughs> but it was weird. It never I never wanted to. And that's when Bob Dylan actually took me under his wing. I was giving up on the first record. It had not sold. It was a failure. I was going in the studio. I was making a pretty reactionary record. I was like, do I just have to write grungier songs? Like, I can do that. And that's when Dylan took me out and he just encouraged me. He liked what I was. He loved my lyrics. He went over my lyrics with me. Like, I was like, if Bob believes in me, <laughs> screw everything. Like, right, I'm okay. Right, right. And so I stuck with right. that record. And then Neil took me under his wing. And he was that same punk rock, like, F it all. F the establishment. Mm -hmm. You're a singer-songwriter. Like it or not, it's a sacred duty to be authentic to who you are. Suck it up and go to work. 
take risks, do whatever you want. And those types of advice at that time, again, nobody liked me. Them liking me meant everything. I just was going to say about Neil that I love this uh, one quote, which I hope is true that I came across where something like you were going to play with him at eventually, this is probably a little bit down the road at MSG, Madison Square Garden, and you were a little bit apprehensive about doing that. And and do you remember, Is do you know what I'm referring to? No, here? what is it? He was just supposedly he's just like, oh, come on. It's just another it's just another it's a bigger coffee shop or something. Oh, like that. that was Neil Young. Yeah. So yes, I was yes. opening for Neil. He had crazy horse with him. So walls of Marshall amps up to the ceiling. I was, I think, solo acoustic. And I must have looked really nervous. And I walked by him in the green room. and He goes, what's the matter? And I was like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm nervous. He goes, you look nervous. I'm like, I am. And I kind of I didn't talk to him a lot. Right. I'm very respectful. Give everybody their distance. And. I, I kind of lost it, though. I was like, I am nervous. He goes, why? I'm like, because you're Neil Young and Crazy Horse, and I'm so acoustic, and it's Madison Square Garden, and I, they're going to murder me out there. <laughs> um, <laughs> and he got his finger in my face and very stern and looked me like dead in the eye. He goes, this is just another hash house on the road to success. You get out there, and you show them <laughs> no respect. And it was like, oh, my God. Yes, sir. I will show them no respect, sir. <laughs> it was like marching orders. <laughs> Well, what I, I hope we can do it with, you know, our remaining few minutes here is if you don't mind, I'd love, I know my listeners would kill me if I didn't just ask you for the, the succinct maybe version of a few of their, of, of the origin stories of a few of their favorite jewel songs. And if you're, if you're willing to do that, we'll go right up through grateful and, and then wrap it up. But, uh, I guess, can we start, you sort of referenced this a little earlier, just who will save your soul. It kind of was at the end of a, uh, well, it was during that that uh, another trip down to Mexico, right? That was my first trip to Mexico. Uh, it's the first song I ever wrote. I wrote it about seeing America for the first time. Yes, Alaska is part of America, but it's very different. Um, <laughs> I had probably 300 verses. I didn't know enough chords to change on the chorus, and so I just changed the melody uh, so the chords stay the same the whole time, and it got me, got me addicted to writing. I never did learn how to play other people's songs because writing – was less effort for me. Just making up stuff mm -hmm. was quicker than learning somebody else's stuff. That was the first single on Pieces of You. The second was You Were Meant for Me, which, from what I understand, was written at the end of a pretty insane day. <laughs> yeah. Um, you can go to my friend's website or just Google Jewel drug photo. Uh, <laughs> but me and Steve went down to Mexico to write songs, and we got lost and ended up in a deserted town. And there were only federales in the town. And we ended up going out on a boat with them to go whale watching while they were looking for drug smugglers. And they found drug smugglers. And we ended up on an accidental bust. And a lot of weed was found, and we have very silly photos of me holding an AR-15, and <laughs> Pultz has a kilo of weed. And we ended up staying for three days with them, and we uh, wrote three songs, and uh, one of those was You Were Meant For Me.
foolish games, I, I think, dated back quite far in your life to maybe a little uh, teenage romance? Actually, I wrote it when I was 18 after I was signed. I grew up loving Leonard Cohen. I loved the famous blue raincoat, and I wanted to write something like that. And so for me, Foolish Games was my best attempt at ripping off Leonard. Um, it wasn't about a relationship I was in. There's a song on my first album called Don't. It's like a very, like, angsty love song. I had never even dated at that point. So for whatever reason, my imagination was just <laughs> really good, and I was always already headed to the breakup phase. I didn't ever write the love songs. I wrote the after love. It was going to be a shit show. I should have just known it. Then, you know, the second album, which won four times platinum, was three years after Pieces of You. And the, I guess, the big hit off, hit single off of that was Hands, which comes back to what you were talking about earlier. Just, I, I have to assume that it was not a coincidence that you were, you were now writing a song about, about your hands, having focused on them and with mindfulness. Yeah, that was based on that first exercise that I built for myself. Mindfulness wasn't even a word back then. Um, right. But about not being a victim, about finally realizing nobody's coming for me, I'm coming for me, that nobody mm -hmm. owes me anything, I owe me a lot. I had no idea when I wrote those lyrics. A lot of them were in the poem when I was homeless um, that I turned into a song all those years later. And again, that mission to make being a happy human the number one goal, I, you know, I started taking years between records. When I got to that height where I was on the cover of Time and I did a follow-up record, I quit for two years. I didn't know if I'd go back mm -hmm. to it because I had to psychologically figure out how do I digest what's happening to me. The reason we lose so many people in my business to drugs and mental health breakdowns is because it's a hard job. It's very psychologically unhealthy. You have to be awake at the wrong times, asleep at the wrong times. You never have privacy. It's a very difficult job. It's a traumatizing job in a lot of ways. So as much as your dreams come true, nobody can figure out how to help you psychologically process what's happening to you. I knew I was vulnerable, and so I was just very proactive about it, and I put my mental health first, um, which is hard. Mm -hmm. You know, that does hurt your career. It does kill your momentum. But it was better than me killing myself, so yeah, I always right. felt good about it. I won't be made useless. won't be idle with despair. Gather myself around my faith. Light the darkness most fear. came back from that sort of uh, self-imposed hiatus of a few years with uh, This Way in 2001. That album had the dance song, Serve the Ego, which was a big hit, but a lot of people were, it was not the, it was not as folky as some people expected. And same with, I guess, the album after that, 0304, released in 2003 with Intuition. Heart, 
was it your decision with songs like those to, you know, let's kind of try to cater to maybe a slightly broader or different audience? Or was that somebody saying you should try this? Or how did how did that end up being the case? My label never one time had a single opinion about how I dressed or what kind of music I made. They were very respectful mm. of me. I never once had an exec wear this or that. If anything with me, it was funny. They always wanted to make sure I didn't have any cleavage in a photo because they wanted, they were like, she's a songwriter. She's not a, you know, piece <laughs> of meat. So they actually were even kind of looking after me that way. But they never once, I, they never heard records before they were done. I handed records in. And it wasn't me thinking about catering to an audience. It wasn't me thinking, how can I grow a fan base? I was never mm -hmm. calculated in that way. I was always trying to stay true to what Bob and Neil taught me, which was you have to follow your muse. It's all you have. Because mm -hmm. the odds of anybody liking any record are really yeah. slim on any record. <laughs> right. The most sellout thing you can do is be so safe that you try and please people by never changing. And God forbid right. that doesn't work. You have to go to sleep at night knowing you sold yourself out. Nobody else may mm -hmm. ever know. Or worse yet, it's a success. And only you know that that was an actual sellout. So for me, when I realized, you know, I didn't mean to write Who'll Save Your Soul. I didn't mean, I didn't know how to write a hit. I didn't. So when Who'll Save Your Soul was a hit, it put a lot of pressure on me of like, holy smokes, how do I do this again? I didn't mean to do it in the first place. And then it dawned on me, hey, idiot, you just sold 12 million records. Save your money and do whatever the F you want. Like I had... Which nobody yeah. telling me I just got to do whatever I wanted. <laughs> I mean, it was uh, well, and uh, eventually that it's amazing the range because you've done country, you've done every genre there is basically. And I guess what that kind of begs the question is for you personally, maybe it cha maybe the answer changes by the day, but what is actually sort of the the closest to to you in the sense of you know your own tastes? Which of your let's say singles, you know, do you personally? click with the most? They all were that way for me. Um, yeah. I kind of describe it like a closet. If you go in your closet, you have sweatpants, you have athletic shorts, you have dressy things for cocktail parties. That doesn't make you a different person. It doesn't mean one of those is more authentically you. I'm a songwriter, right? So my heart is always going to be writing lyrics about humanity and about real things. That's just, that's the follow through thread. How I dressed musically was really about growing. You know, you go from 18 over your life. For me, the takeaway was I'm a highly curious person. You know, I'm voracious in my wanting to learn. And if I stayed the same, it'd be death to me. It isn't how I am wired. I can't do it. Um, repeating myself feels like I'm not growing and I'm not stretching. And so I'd rather take a risk and fail than again, sell out, but how people perceive selling out is so interesting because to me, selling out yes. is is trying to please everyone. When other people think selling out is changing a genre, it's so funny to me right. that that was the thing. <laughs> My fans never felt that way. My fans were always very connected to me. Um, when I made, so Standing Still was the hit off of uh, the This Way album, but I started doing remixes because I was fascinated with it. I loved it. I was mm -hmm. fascinated of how can you take folk songs and repackage them and reinvent them. And that was before David Gray and the songwriters that started doing that eventually later. And my fans were down with it. You know, my fans had no problem with it. The casual fans or the press were really caught off guard by 0304. Mm -hmm. My fans saw this evolution happening through my remixes and stuff. But you have to realize, like, there aren't many female singer-songwriters. 
singer-songwriters in the 90s were supposed to be credible and you can't sell out, which is a form of selling out, by the way. You're so mm-hmm. like pretentiously <laughs> obsessed with looking cool and credible that you're already sold out because that's what you're worrying about. It's a very weird thing to me. <laughs> and you weren't allowed to do any kind of make money on the outside, right? Pop singers could do a Pepsi commercial, no problem. Bruce Springsteen, not allowed, right? Singer-songwriters aren't allowed to do it. So when I made 0304, I dressed sexy, I made pop music, and I promoted things. And it was, I mean, I'm just a weird person. I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to challenge people's perceptions. I literally had people tell me I wasn't intelligent now that I was wearing a miniskirt. You know, and it's just amazing what women go through. And yeah. I have to say, too, to people's whatever perceptions, there weren't any female musicians that changed artistically that weren't contrived. I love Madonna, but her talent is seeing what an audience needs, figuring out how to do it. She's very intelligent that way. Bob Dylan didn't do it for that reason. He didn't go electric because he was wanting to figure out how to widen his audience base and be provocative. He didn't mind being provocative, but he did it from the inside, whereas most female famous singers did it from the outside. So I was kind of one of the first females Joni Mitchell, you know, made an electronic record. I, I'm definitely not, you know, inventing the wheel here. But it just wasn't common. And it just wasn't done. Right. And nobody wanted their singer-songwriter. You know, I had, was it Geffen? I had a massive music mogul bring me into his office. He wasn't at my label. I thought he wanted me to write songs for one of his artists. He sat me down. I shook his hand. It was either Clive Davis or Geffen. Yeah. I sat down. He goes, fuck you. And I was like, What? And he goes, fuck you. He goes, I called you in here because nobody wants this generation's Joni Mitchell to wear a miniskirt. You knock it the fuck off. Whoa. I mean, wow. That's a reaction. <laughs> what, what do you say to that? I, I don't even remember what I said. I was so shocked. Yeah. I, I think I just, I was like, I hear your opinion. I was like, but I'm doing this because I have to do it. <laughs> yeah. I'm doing this because I'm an artist. Like, I need to grow and change and... 0304 is one of my favorite records. I love the writing yeah. on that record. I love the lyrics on that record. I feel like I was able to marry pop music with really gritty, good lyrics. And I had fun doing it, you know? So it was just funny that it caused such a kerfuffle that what's funny is people think that's a sellout. Doing that nearly, I knew it could end my career. I knew, yeah. you know, I knew my fans would stick with me, my core. But yeah. that wasn't what you do when you want to sell out. You don't make piss everybody off. <laughs> <laughs> well, so here we are in 2020, and we are on the brink of getting the 12th studio album by Jewel, first in five years. And we've got our first taste of it very recently, a single called Grateful. And I think it was a decision that was, to, to put that out there was maybe expedited by the by the little, you know, strange circumstances in which we find ourselves right now, the reason we are on video <laughs> at the moment. Um, do you want to say anything about Grateful? Great song. Yeah. So the last five years, I dedicated myself to building a business outside of music, and it's based on mindfulness. It's based on creating curriculums that can help people, whether you have a therapist or not. So I developed the mindfulness tools into an English curriculum for public schools, um, creating a cartoon for toddlers that teaches them some of the self-regulation. I have a award-winning charity that takes suicidal youth and they don't have access to therapy. They just use this mindfulness toolkit and they're transformed. It's amazing. These, these kids are just beautiful. And so I've been writing a book about 
change, about the metrics of change. Why don't we change? How do we change? It's about neuroplasticity and then creating. Mindfulness has two components. One is meditation. That's like doing a bicep curl in the gym. But if you don't use that muscle during the day, your life isn't going to change. So for whatever reason, I was good at developing tools that helped take mindfulness and put it into motion that rewired my habits. So that's what's on the free website. It's jewelneverbroken.com. It'll teach you how to meditate, which is super simple, by the way. It's kind of this mystical thing people don't understand. And then there's these little three-minute exercises that were proven to work by a neuroscientist called Dr. Judson Brewer. Gratitude, while I was writing this book, I wrote a record. It's the first record I've written from scratch. I've never written an album from scratch. I've always had thousands of songs in my back catalog. And so when I did 0304, I had it in the bag. I'd been writing these songs <laughs> forever. If I wanted to write a country album, I didn't have to. I already had hundreds of songs that were country <laughs> songs. I've always written all the styles because I listened to all the styles. So any record was no stress. I was able to just pick maybe 10 off my back catalog and then maybe write two for the record. This is the first time I've written a record from scratch in my entire life. It was very yeah. hard. I wrote 200 songs to get 10 that I like. And oh. it began shaping up as a soul record. So the record has a soul feel, kind of a 70s soul feel. I was really flattered. Um, Bill Withers passed away just before I released Grateful. And a journalist wrote that uh, they didn't think Bill Withers would reincarnate so quickly. I was so flattered. <laughs> but he was a huge That's influence great. on this record. I mean, you'll mm. definitely hear it in Grateful. Yeah, It's kind of a new style or genre for me. I listened to a ton of soul music growing up. It's a style I've always sung live but haven't been able to record. So it'll be a style of my singing people haven't probably heard me do before, which makes me happy. Grateful is about those two states, dilated or contracted. Every thought, feeling, or action leads to one of those two states. The best hack for anxiety is become profoundly grateful because your body neurologically, neurotransmitters, everything has to change. Your whole system will dilate, your blood pressure drops, blood patterns change in your brain, and you get different biochemicals flooding your system off of one hack, learning to be grateful. So it was certainly wasn't I was what I was gonna lead a record with, but it just I wanted to get that message out. Last 30 seconds, if it's okay, just the rapid fire of just, you know, first thing that comes to your mind, where do you see your influence most today? Is there a singer songwriter who you think or have been told that you most influenced, most helped to shape? Oh, of another artist? It's sweet. You know, Lana Del Rey wrote in her school yearbook, you know, I'm your angel standing by, which is one of my songs. Um, yeah, a lot of the female female pop singers as well as, and, and I've actually met a lot of male songwriters. Um, so it's very, it's very flattering when you see that. Could Jewel and the story of Jewel happen today in, in the 2020s in the way that it did in the nineties? I just, I always think about this, even with, let's say like the TV show, the West Wing or something where you were basically projecting optimism, which today, because of things that have happened in the years since, 9-11, Clinton Lewinsky, a million different things. I feel like we're a much more cynical society. Do you think that that 
you could have happened in the same way today? Cynicism was very prevalent in the 90s. I actually see now yeah. in the 90s as a very, very similar social atmosphere. I think on the cover of Time, it said cynicism out. Cynicism is out and hope is in. It is absolutely possible. I think one of the reasons I worked was because I wasn't, there's two types of optimism. Optimism is a misinterpreted word. What a lot of people say when they say the word optimism, it was said as an insult to me over and over. Optimism in a negative form is sticking your head in the sand and saying, I don't, you know, I don't see any problems. It's rainbows and unicorns. It's all kittens and everything's great. That wasn't who I was. Like when you can stare right. down the worst in humanity and you can say, but I'm going to do something today different than yesterday and I'm going to make a difference. That's a very gritty thing. It's a very different thing than what people think of as an optimism. I call it informed optimism where you go, I see the truth, but I'm going to make a difference. I think the world needs that now. I think that in the 90s, we were still closer to heroes that did that. We were used to folk revolutions. We'd heard that. Kids today, songwriters today are so removed from that type of hero that I'm shocked there's not more singer-songwriters talking about social issues. It's mind-boggling me. But that tells you how depleted our social soil is. It shows you how depleted our influences have been. But it's absolutely you know, completely a thousand percent possible. It's just going to take somebody that's gritty as hell and willing to fight for it. And lastly, if you'll humor the question, if you could tell the world just one thing during this insane <laughs> moment in time, uh, you know, if somebody were to hear one line from, from this, it would be what? We're going to be okay. We can't control what's happening to us. We can control how it changes us. You have the ability to allow, allow this time to be a period of activism. You get to choose whether you're going to come out of this more anxious or more resilient. That's on you. Well, I can't thank you enough. It's been for all the my whole lifetime of uh, of great music and then for the for the last hour. I really appreciate it. So thanks for taking the time. Thanks. I appreciate it. I really enjoyed it. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network, all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in.